Romans chapter 16, verse number 1. Paul says, as he concludes this long letter, I command unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, which is down by Corinth. He's writing to the Romans. He speaks about the church near Corinth. That you receive her in the Lord. That's what good saints do, as become a saints. And that she assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many and of myself. A helper, a sustainer, a blessing. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that's in their house. Verse 6. Greet Mary. Salute Andronicus and Junia. And we could go all the way down through the rest of that chapter, but skip down to verse number 17. Now, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the uneducated, the simple. Someone told me recently that he heard that our church was de-emphasizing doctrine. He said that he had received that information from a, mem a member of our church, and I was, I was shocked. As I've often said, and as I will continue to do, I will try my best to preach the gospel Preach the message of the Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday morning. But I cannot preach the gospel without the foundational doctrines that are there. I can't right. preach the gospel without declaring to you the depravity of man, right. the necessity of the blood atonement, the deity of Christ, and each of these things. And as I said last Wednesday, doctrine is also a part of the foundation of living the Christian life. We live this way because these things are true. We have been taught these things and therefore we do these things. We do and believe certain things because they are taught in the Word of God. Our church has an extensive doctrinal statement. That statement is on our website. If anyone should stumble into our church, they have the opportunity of finding out exactly who we are and what we believe. Now, being given the opportunity of teaching this morning, I've decided to address the general subject of doctrine. We won't go back through our doctrinal statement again. We did that quite thoroughly a couple of years ago. I mean, really thoroughly. I'd rather share with you my perspective on doctrine in general. Even though we could turn to quite a number of different scriptures, I think this one is a pretty good place to start in our consideration of doctrine. Paul has just finished commending some people that he knew. Some were members of the church in Rome. And he tells everyone to receive Phoebe, who was probably unknown to just about everybody in Rome. She has traveled a long way for whatever purpose, I don't know, but she should be received as a sister in Christ. Then after listing more than a, a 
couple dozen people from verse 1 down to verse number 16, Paul goes on to uh, suggest that we, we shake their hand. In our culture, we would uh, greet them with a, a handshake, but in their culture, salute them and give them a holy kiss. Make sure that these people like uh, uh, Phoebe know that they are welcome. And then immediately after all his names, immediately after, he begins telling people, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we, you have learned, and avoid them. Receive, assist, salute, greet, even kiss the brethren, but mark and avoid a great many others. And here's the point. The difference between these two kinds of people and the attitude that we should have toward them does not lay in their attitude. It doesn't matter how friendly they are. It doesn't matter how big their smile might be, how hearty their handshake is, how outgoing, how commending, how commendable they are. It doesn't matter if they're rich and generous. It doesn't matter if they're poor and in need of your generosity. It doesn't matter if they're smart. It doesn't matter if they're good looking. It doesn't matter how they are dressed. It doesn't matter if they say they love the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite what other scriptures might say and other circumstances might dictate, Paul points at this point to the nasty subject of doctrine. Now there's something which I think here is important. Some of you are already aware of this. The Greek word which is translated doctrine is didache. The literal meaning of the word doctrine is teaching. Right. You probably understand that. But 29 out of the 30 times this Greek word is found in the New Testament, it is not translated teaching. It is translated doctrine. Doctrine. In English and in common use, these two words are closely related. But there is a difference between doctrine and teaching. In English and in common use, there is the act of teaching and there is the subject which is being taught. There is teaching, which I'm trying to do this morning, and there is the doctrine that I'm trying to teach, the teaching. One's a noun, one's a verb. I understand I got my adjectives and adverbs confused the other day. I think this is, an, we're talking about nouns and verbs here. I think I got this one right. The first definition of doctrine in the dictionary is principle or body of principles presented for acceptance or belief. Paul was not simply talking about individual things in verse number 17 or verse number yes verse number 17 he's bundling them all together a group of them a, a doctrinal system if you like it wasn't just a matter of this and that but rather about the entire basis and foundation of christian thought christian belief christianity 
Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. On what ground should we ever consider fellowship with another professing Christian? Or attending a prospective church? It's not simply on their friendliness. It's not simply that we are friendly, which we are supposed to be, commanded to be. A a church is not to be rejected or accepted based on the brand of coffee they serve between Sunday school and church. Or whether there are donuts there to eat. It's not about the size of the front door. It's not about whether or not there's a chandelier in the foyer. It's not whether or not they say foyer or foyer. It's unimportant. Paul tells us what should separate those whom we salute and whom we should avoid is doctrine. With that in mind, I'd like to point to two approaches we might make to the subject of doctrine. There are things which we should not consider and not do when it comes to doctrine. Notice the specifics of verse number 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching which ye have received, and avoid them. Now I know that I'm standing on quicksand as far as some people are concerned, but listen to Paul. Notice that he doesn't say anything about the people who don't cause divisions and offenses. This is about those who are disturbing the peace. Let's say that one of our members believes that the world is flat instead of round. As far as I know, there are none here that believe that. But there could be, because there are people out there that believe that. Baptist people. Fundamental Baptist people believe the world is flat. If he has never mentioned his opinion to you or to anyone else, what harm is there to you that he holds the idea that the world is flat? It doesn't hurt you in any way, shape, or form. And if he's not sharing it with others in the church, it doesn't hurt the church either. Not at all. If someone doesn't believe that eternal life is really eternal, but he internalizes that thought, what harm can his false doctrine give to you? How can it hurt you? No matter what theological error someone holds, if he knows that his church does not believe the way he does, and he doesn't rock the canoe... We should be patient with him and just let the Lord teach him that the world is round. Get on an airplane and take a look. The second thing Paul says here still goes against the grain of a great many theological people. Paul simply says, avoid them. Avoid them. Doctrine has not been given to us by the Holy Spirit to be used as an axe to cut people's heads off. It is not an awl by which we suck out the guy's heart. That's not the point. I'll come back to this in a minute. 
But doctrine is more about us than it is about them, generally speaking. Its effects upon you, it, in its effects upon you, what, what you believe or what, which is more important? What he believes or what you believe? The Bible doctrine teaches, the Bible teaches us that salvation is by grace through faith and it's personal. What that man believes about the doctrine of salvation does not affect your salvation. It's just that simple. The Bible lays the foundation for how you and I should believe. And when someone is misbehaving, then we might lovingly share with them, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't ought to do this. But we have no right to bash that person on the head with what we believe is the truth. I'm, I'm talking about bashing on the head. I know that I sound like a liberal, but remember, I have certain strong beliefs about a great many Bible doctrines. And uh, I won't uh, uh, mince words about them. And I'm pretty sure that uh, this is what the Bible teaches us about the doctrine of doctrine. Yes. yes. Another thing about doctrine is that we shouldn't be using it as some sort of badge of honor. We've all seen pictures, or we know people, of high military rank. And when they dress up in their uh, dress clothing, there may be two or three or four or five rows of ribbons across their left breast. That may be indication of dozens of honors. And they wear them with pride. And it's acceptable for Secular warriors, it is not acceptable for you and me. We are to be known, first of all, as Christians, as children of God. If we are identified first and foremost as Baptists, I'll come back to this, if we're known first and foremost as sovereign grace people or King James only people, then something is wrong. We're, we're leaving the wrong testimony. When we are introduced to someone's friend, here's my friend George, would you, would you like to say hello to George? And he extends his hand to shake ours. We cannot properly greet him when our hands are clinched in a doctrinal fist. We have to open up. And by the way, those military ribbons are in a foreign language as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what all those things say. And probably a lot of military people wouldn't know what they say either. And the same is true with the ribbons of doctrine that some people wear on their chests. You're going to have to explain that to me. Oh, but we don't have time for that. Just know that I am one of these people. You better beware or uh, follow me. A third thing for which doctrine is used inappropriately is as a hammock on which to rest. Huh. Yes, we believe that the lost need to hear the gospel. They need to repent. 
They need to trust Christ. Is that enough? To know that these people need these things? If we sit back in our doctrinal rocking chair, playing our banjo, whittling and spitting, uh, but doing nothing more, our doctrine means nothing to either the lost or to the Lord. The Apostle John teaches us that if we have hope in Christ, then we should purify ourselves even as our returning Savior is pure. And we can go through a multitude of doctrines and say, here's the doctrine, this is the result, or should be the result. We are a doctrinal church, we are a doctrinal people, but we must use that grace graciously. What are some of the positive things which come with Bible doctrine? First, doctrine is the key to who we are. I think most people want to be praised or cursed based upon their own merits, on the truth. At school, we want it to be our grade. Forget all that averaging business and giving me the grade of somebody else. And at the end of the day, most of us should want a proper religious identification as well. I used to really stew over a group of acquaintances who refused to think our church is one of the Lord's ecclesias. used to bother me a lot. While that's bad enough, they also openly declare, and still do, that we believe this doctrine, this doctrine, and this doctrine. When in fact, I don't. And our church doesn't. But they go around the country saying, Calvary and the Baptist, Independent Baptist Church believes this doctrine, this doctrine, and this doctrine. And it just, it bothers me. That's not who I am. This is who I am. These doctrines, which we have in print, which we yes, have put on yes. our website. That's right. And when I've talked to these people and said, this is what we believe, they have the audacity to shake their head and say, no, you don't. <laughs> really? I'm not making this stuff up. This is true. And Austin's experienced some of this as well. But what is it which is most often used to identify a church? It's our denominational title. We're Baptists. I love the name Baptist. This is the best church title there is. If the people who are using that title know what it means, know its history. Of course, as an individual, I want to be known as a child of God. I want to be known as a Christian. But... All of these terms, Baptist, Christian, child of God, are used by so many in so many different ways, it becomes confusing mm. to people who aren't aware of what's going on. Years ago, I don't know how long ago it was, I looked up the name John Smith in the Post Falls Coeur d'Alene phone book. Some of you might remember what a phone book is. <laughs> At the time, it grouped all these names together, and you could see a whole list. 
And when I made this survey of John Smith, it surprised me how few John Smiths there were. I would have said, a hundred John Smiths in Kootenai County, or something like that. But that's just not the way it was. Uh, I surmised that parents with the surname of Smith got creative in naming their children. They avoided the, the really common stuff and uh, used other kinds of names. If you don't have a weird name like Oldfield, you may have to go out of your way to explain what kind of smith you are. Does this make sense? So you give your kids strange names. There still were several John Smiths, and there were J. Smiths, and some people had found unique ways of spelling the name John, but it was still John Smith. How can we be sure that one John Smith of Kootenai County is not some other John Smith of Kootenai County? Well, there are unique fingerprints, there are voice patterns, there are dental records, there are shoe sizes, there are retinal scans, there's DNA, the list goes on and on and on. And similarly, there are about as many different kinds of Baptists as there are John Smiths in the world. How can we determine that one Baptist is related to another Baptist, but not related to a third? It is by the things that we believe. Yes. And those things that we believe reproduce themselves in our living, the way we live. Unlike names, doctrine truly identifies people. I said a moment ago that some people almost, almost spit when they hear the name Calvary Baptist Church of Post Falls. No one likes to be cursed for another man's crime. Just because they share the same name doesn't mean anything. When we go to the New Testament and we look at the man who is writing the book of Romans, we see that Paul was cursed all the time. All the time. And in his own writings, he identifies himself. If you're going to curse me, curse me for this. This doctrine. This what I did in such and such a town in preaching the gospel to the, the mayor of that community. The next day, chapter 13 of Acts, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. When the church, Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with en envy and they spake against those things which were spoken by Paul. So they're ready to curse Paul for the things that Paul was speaking, his doctrine, which at that point in time in that context was the Gentiles can be saved too. I could take you to chapter 14 of Acts and chapter 17. How did Paul and Silas turn the world upside down? They turned the world upside down by their teaching, by their doctrine which was contrary to what the Romans knew. It was contrary to what the Jews knew. They were telling the world, you are all sinners and you need to be born again. And there's life in the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say is 
that we associate with Paul and we associate with Christ not simply on the grounds that we love them, not simply on the grounds that uh, uh, we're members of one of his churches, not on the grounds of our mutual friendship, I like Paul, so I must be related to Christ, no, but on doctrine. Not only is doctrine the key to our identity, but it's the, the means of our defense. Listen to the opening words of the book of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. We notice that this letter was not written to the bishops and deacons, uh, the pastors of the church. This was to a, a general letter. Mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. Brother, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write uh, unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I know I'm sounding somewhat contradictory here. I realize that. One of our responsibilities, one of the responsibilities of every Christian is to contend for the faith when there are divisions and offenses stirring things up. Destroying the equilibrium, the peace. Unfortunately, not only are most Christians unwilling to fight over doctrine, they're incapable of doing it because they really haven't been grounded in that doctrine. As an example, there are many professing Christians who deny that there is a literal devil named Satan. I keep bringing him up because this is a relatively common opinion. They want to allegorize the devil. They want to say there is an evil propensity in the world and those Christians have just uh, made this straw man and they call him Satan, that sort of thing. But the Bible declares his personality, declares his personal existence, reveals some of the uh, points of his own history and even his future. Satan is Jehovah's primary and most powerful enemy. And one of his favorite weapons against the things of God is ignorance. He wants us not to understand. He wants us not to believe in, in his own existence, among, among other things. If he can keep an unbeliever in the dark about his sins, about eternal judgment, about redemption, then he has won a small victory. And if he can keep Christians from talking about these things because they're not uh, well-versed in biblical doctrine, he has another victory. The ability to defend the truth against someone who is causing divisions and offenses contrary to Bible instruction hinges on how we know, how well we know Bible doctrine. Here's a man who knows a, a few dozen proof texts. He has prepared his castle. Every man's home is his castle prepared his castle against the attacks of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
or perhaps in your neighborhood, it's the Mormons. And he's learned a dozen verses to reply to those people who come to his castle, to his door. And you might say he's like a, a sharpshooting soldier on high ground with that uh, uh, high-powered rifle, shoots one well-developed bullet and plunk, plunk, plunk. He's able to bring down those enemy that come by, one by one, those doctrines that come by. But then here's a man who's studied the Bible doctrine more fully. He's like the man with the high-powered automatic weapon, and he just mows them down because he's well-founded in the Word of God. How can we mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to to what we have learned if we haven't learned anything. Systematic theology links point to point and builds a doctrinal foundation which is not easily disrupted. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he made the statement, these things write I unto you, hoping to come to, you, to thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and crown of the truth. The church of the living God is not an undefined, invisible, unassembling assembly. It takes a form like what we have right here. Paul was speaking about the assembly of God, which Timothy was pastoring at that time, which was probably Ephesus, if I understand correctly. And making the due and appropriate application, Paul was talking about that church and other churches like, like our own. This church of which you are a member is, in a sense, a pillar and ground of the truth here in our community. And this church is made up of you and me. Not me. You and me. All of us. We are the arms and the legs and the eyes, the feet, the fingers and the toes of the body of Christ in this community. And thus together, you and I are the pillar and ground of God's truth here. It's not that everything lies on our shoulders. God is still God. But we have a responsibility for holding up the truth. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's our job, lift up Christ. Other doctrines as well. If we neglect sound doctrine, we tear down the pillars. And if that be the case, then we're begging the Lord to remove the candlestick. What's our point? What's our purpose? Not that it's a problem at this church, but oratory and flowery preaching, loud preaching, tear-jerking preaching, uh, may bind people to the preacher, but they may blind them to the truth at the same time. The truth is what matters. 
yes. not necessarily in how yes. well it's presented. The neglect of doctrine is a road to uncertainty, inaccuracy, immaturity, and eventually ecclesiastical death. Perhaps I should finish the context of the verses that I just quoted in order to point out the importance of Bible doctrine. Paul was writing to Timothy, But these things write I unto thee, unto thee hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. There are about a half dozen things thoroughly denied by a great many churches in the world today. And Paul says, this is, this is what you should be teaching, Timothy. Most people in Ephesus need to know these things. It's true. Going back to what I said on Wednesday, doctrine is the, also the key to our godly Christian character. Paul goes on. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. It's about the effects. Perhaps you haven't heard it said, but I have. Doctrine deadens spiritual life. Doctrine kills vitality. While I admit that is a possibility, true Bible doctrine cannot dampen life. It enlivens light, life when it's proper. Each and every doctrine ought to produce practical results. Take, for example, the verse that I just quoted, the one about the doctrine of Christ. When we know and believe and bask in the deity and humanity and the glory of Christ, we learn how to worship. We know what love is. We love him because he first loved us. Here in his love, not that we love, that he loved us. Those who love the Savior become the most practical Christians. Some foolish people say that the doctrine of eternal security produces carnal, sinful lives. Some carnal, sinful, professing Christians may make that statement, but it is yet to be proven that the people who say that are Christians. When someone grasps the truth of eternal salvation, they recognize that it directly connects them to the eternal and holy God. That God and that Savior expect and demand holiness. And when the professing Christian lives in open sin, he's saying, I'm not a child of God. I know nothing about the Lord. Other people think that the doctrine of sovereign election means that evangelism is unimportant and that faith and repentance have become unimportant. That is as untrue as 
the statement, the moon is made of green cheese. What does Colossians 1, 9 and 10 teach us about doctrine and character? Maybe I should read it for you. I'm running out of time. For this cause also, since the day we heard it, don't cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That in order that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Based on knowledge, we have service. And the more we serve, the more we know the Lord. Doctrinal knowledge is the nourishment upon which the Christian life grows and flourishes. We looked at 1 Peter a couple of years ago. Chapter 2 begins, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. How do we grow? We don't grow on the fluff and the uh, fast foods of modern Christianity. We grow on substantial material. We grow on doctrine, on truth. The key, doctrine is the key to godly living and godly loving churches. God's best workers, his greatest saints, have a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches. It may even be systematized into some sort of theology. Doctrine doesn't kill spiritual life or good workers. It polishes them, strengthens them, makes them shine. The doctrine of eternal retribution is as practical as any other doctrine in the word of God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that, that, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The doctrine of holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Do you understand that I am holy? Be ye holy. The doctrine of the imminent second coming. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his, at his coming. The doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of hell, uh, the list goes on and on. Many a Christian life is filled with holes. And I'm convinced that those holes are created by a lack of understanding of this Bible doctrine and that Bible doctrine. Many Christians feed on nothing but religious junk food rather than on substantial truth. There's nothing more heartbreaking than seeing a, a, a starving dog or a horse that's dying because it's not being fed, skin and bones. Let's get the doctrinal skeleton right and cover it with the meat and muscle of Christian living. There are Millions of professing Christians who are like that starving horse. Paul tells us to be kind and friendly one to another. But when someone is belligerent, particularly in his defense of error, we must 
walk away, first of all. And if they use that false doctrine against the Lord's church, then more drastic measures must be taken. And by the way, salvation is by grace through faith. It is one of the most essential of all Bible doctrines. We're not going to understand any doctrine until we have spiritual life. Right. If you have not been saved, if you have not been born again, this lesson probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. <laughs> have you completely and fully humbled yourself mm -hmm. before the Lord in repentance? Are you trusting Him for life and forgiveness? For eternity. This is an essential Bible doctrine. Yes, it is. 